0: These are the words of Solomon, the preacher king. A good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we turn to Colossians chapter 2 to read verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of your faith in Christ. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, by your Spirit, Uh, We ask you to illuminate the scriptures today for the sake of your covenant people. Amen. One of the challenges of the book of Ecclesiastes is that at certain points of the book, you can forget that Solomon is using satire. Uh, And that can lead you to wonder, what does he really think about wisdom? Is wisdom better than foolishness or is it kind of irrelevant because we're all going to die no matter what? No matter whether we were wise or filled with folly. He seems at times to say, look, you're all going to the same place. You're all going to the grave. But now the preacher king, Solomon, is giving you his own view. Right? He sets satire aside. He's not satirizing or critiquing other worldviews. This is what he thinks. And it's clear that the big idea of this passage Is that wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. Now, here's why this matters. Here's why it's better. In our fallen condition, we as sinful people, living in a fallen, sinful world, we can fail to properly prioritize, right? We lack the ability necessary to order and orient things properly in relationship to one another. That's folly. But godly wisdom is better because it helps us keep our priorities straight and rightly evaluate things in life. That's why it's better. Wisdom, as you've heard me say before, is skill in the art of godly living. In other words, wisdom helps you navigate life. That's why it's better. We're living life as God's people in God's world and we need godly wisdom to help us figure out how to put one foot in front of the other and sort this life out. Wisdom helps us get through it. Now, we need to keep a few things straight. What you're getting this morning in Ecclesiastes today, it's not the gospel, strictly speaking. Right? The good news of Jesus is that you had no chance. The gospel is that you had no chance of figuring this stuff out for yourself, because you are a sinner in rebellion against God. The gospel is, is that despite the fact that you are naturally a fool, Jesus, who is, according to Paul, the very wisdom of God, he became a man. He lived a perfect life. He grew in wisdom as the second Adam, and he died in your place. He died the death that is worthy of rebellious fools, despite the fact that he was a righteous, wise, perfectly obedient son. That's the good news of Jesus. God had a standard for wisdom. He had a standard for how to live. We rebelled against it. We were unable, by our own strength and our own cleverness, to figure out how to live and to strive our way back to God. But God did not leave us without hope. He gave us his own son, who is very God of very gods. And he died in our place. The text that we're covering today is on one hand like a mirror, because as we hold it up, and as we see wise living in practice, we go, okay, I, I fall short of that standard. It shows us how we as redeemed people, on the other hand, it shows us how we as redeemed people can live a life that pleases God. So It's a mirror that shows us how sinful we are, but it's also a guide. It teaches us how to live as redeemed people in such a way that pleases our Father. Right? This passage that we're discussing this morning is gracious instruction in how to live now that you have believed the gospel. Does that kind of make sense? I want us to keep that clear because sometimes we can read passages like this and we can begin to believe a little lie in our heart. You know, if I can just sort this out, if I can be this wise, then I will be acceptable in the sight of God. If I can just figure this out, then he will love me. Now, this is a passage for people to put one foot in front of the other, knowing that they have been loved by God And this is how we live as faithful children. I mean, did you catch what Paul had to say about this, about Jesus in particular, in Colossians 4? Excuse me, Colossians 2, verse 4, 3 and 4. He said, All the the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And today, as Solomon speaks to us, the wisdom within Solomon's words are hidden in Christ. These are words of wisdom from the king to his people. And he's teaching us, and as he's teaching us, he's giving us treasures. So what treasures of wisdom and knowledge does this passage have for us today? What understanding is the king imparting to his people through these words? What is Christ teaching us in his word? Not so that we might get saved, but because we are his redeemed people, how should we then live? There's six things in these 12 verses. The first thing is this. Christ teaches us how to understand reputation. Verse 1a. He covers this very briefly. But he tells us that a good name is more valuable to us than ointment. Now, it's important to understand that reputation is not the same as character. Character is who you are when no one is looking. Character is objectively just who and what you are. Reputation is a little bit more subjective, right? Your reputation, your good name in the eyes of other people can ebb and flow based on things that they've observed in you or things that they've heard maybe that aren't even true. Sometimes you can have a bad reputation for no good reason. Sometimes you can have a good reputation for no good reason. Now, it's important to understand that precious ointment, we, how many of you, if I were to ask you what your most treasured possession in your house is, you'd be like, an ointment. I have an ointment in my bathroom that is just, it's just my favorite thing. We don't really you know, in our modern day, we just don't really under, understand this like they would. But ointment would have incredible value to them. It would be... The, the, the ointment being described here is very costly. It would be considered something of a commodity. And so what's, what's being said here, I think, what's being applied is that, you know, reputation does actually have something of a financial value. It's why if you're slandered or liable and you can prove it in court people will have to compensate you financially for damaging your reputation because there's a value to your reputation. I can think of a, of a show I was watching several years ago, and in this one particular episode, a man was making a business deal, and he was selling his company, and the buyer wanted the inventory and the physical store and, and all, all of the contents. And he said, okay, you can have it for your asking price, but I keep the name because the name of the, of the store had his name in it. He says, that's my name. I'm keeping my name. And the guy said, well, we, that's kind of 50% of why we want the business. is because of the value of your name. And so he said, well, it's going to cost you more if you want my name. Because I've built this business on my name, on my reputation. And it matters. Right? He understood the value. There's an actual financial value to a good name, a good reputation. But it's more than financial. We see this in Proverbs 22, verse 1. The value of a good name is beyond Uh, financial it's beyond uh, riches so there's something to having a good reputation having a good name that it can't be quite calculated and it's valuable to us we need to understand our reputation really does matter now let me just make it very clear Solomon is not encouraging us to fear man He's not encouraging us to micromanage what other people think about us. He's not saying, look, reputation matters so much, you should just have a bunch of anxiety about what people think about you and just constantly try to do PR for yourself. No, no, no. That's not what he's saying at all. On the other hand, he is telling us not to discount reputation. After all, being well thought of by outsiders is a qualification for office in the church. You have to have a good reputation amongst non-Christians. Now, to be clear, the Bible does illustrate for us that sometimes the gospel and fearing God will harm your reputation with others. There will be people who look down upon you and consider your name to be mud because of your faith in Christ. But if there's going to be anything that causes your name to be mud in the minds of other people, the only thing that's really worth it is for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus. The Bible seems to illustrate from cover to cover that there's a right way and a wrong way to ruin your reputation. Do you think Paul's reputation was ruined in the eyes of certain people when he converted to Christianity and began to preach the gospel that Jesus has, had risen from the dead? Absolutely. He had a good name amongst the Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he said. That all went away the second that he decided to follow Jesus. So I think what's being said here. I could, if I could summarize it and also bring in some other elements from other passages of Scripture. Reputation has a real value, and it's important. And it might be ruined because you treasure Jesus and not man's approval. But the only good reason to have a ruined reputation in the eyes of other people is for the sake of the gospel. So don't spend a whole bunch of time worrying yourself about what other people think about you. But understand there really is, a good va- uh, there is real value in having a good name. Here's the second thing that Christ teaches us in this passage. Christ is teaching us how to navigate endings. There's three different types of endings listed in this passage scattered throughout verse 1, 8, and 10. The ending of life, the ending of matters, and the end of an era. Verse 1b deals with the end of life. Why in the world can he say that death is better than birth? The day of our death, the day that we're buried, is better than the day of our birth. I don't know about you, but when a baby's born, we all get happy, we celebrate, right? We baptize them on the day of their, their baptism. We have a cake with their name on it. It's funny because they, they're the only ones in the room that really can't enjoy that cake. Uh, but, you know, we, we, th- we have a big time. But then there's everybody's happy. Nobody's sad. But then when we bury people, there's all these people mourning and sad. So how can he say this? Well, what happens when you die? What happens when a covenant man or a covenant woman dies Well, they're free from sin. They're free from folly, from temptation, from pain, from suffering. They're free from living surrounded by uh, other people who are fallen and sinful and can bring harm to them. And they're in the presence of God forever. That's why he can say that this day is better than that. See, when you're born, you're born into a household with two sinful parents. Even if they're Christians, they're sinful parents, right? They're going to mess you up somehow, even if they do a great job. And then you're surrounded by sinners your whole life. And you yourself are a sinner, suffering and in agony at various times, in varying degrees. But when you die, you enter the presence of your loving Father. So does this mean, well, we should support assisted suicide? And things like that? Look, look, if death is better, you know, then let's just get, get on with it. If the day of our death is better, then why don't we just pass around the Kool-Aid, right? And the answer is, is because life and death are ultimately the hands of God. It's he who determines the day of our birth and the day of our death. That's not for us to take into our own hands. That's God's business, not ours. Our business is to live a faithful life under the sun as it's given to us by God. So his, his opinion is that the day of life... Wisdom is allowing Solomon to know the day that our life ends is a better day for us than the day that we are born, precisely because of where we go when we die as Christians. The second endings that he deals with is the end of matters. This is what's mentioned in verse A. It's, it's better to end a matter than to begin a matter. Being a finisher in life, I think, takes more character than being a starter. Starting something can, it can take a little uh, enthusiasm and imagination and some talent, But seeing something through to the end, that takes perseverance. A lot of people can start a lot of things, but they never quite get it off the ground, let alone finish. Don't get me wrong. We need people who start new things, who have new initiatives, new ideas, and new inventions. But if they cannot count the cost and finish, what does Jesus say about that in Luke 14, verses 28 through 30? A man started a tower, but he didn't figure it all out beforehand, and so he can't finish. And he's laughed at. It's foolishness. One scholar said this about beginning things but not finishing. He said it's all, or he said it's an affront to our dignity to start and not finish. Isn't that true? How many of you, you get really excited about something, you start something, and you get it going, and then you, you just forget about it, or you just can't complete the pr- you feel a little guilt and shame, don't you? You feel bad. <laughs> it doesn't feel good. It's an affront to your dignity. Now, on the other hand, sometimes we get off to a rocky start, don't we? We start a business or a marriage or a friendship or we found an institution and it's not going super well. But what this text is reminding us is it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. Isn't that encouraging? Some of you might feel this way in your parenting. You're like, man, this is not going so well. There's still time. Parenting doesn't end tomorrow. It's not about how you start, it's about how you finish. So keep going. Here's the third matter of endings, the end of an era. Did you know the Bible talks about nostalgia? That's what's being dealt with in verse 10. The Bible contains a warning about nostalgia. He basically says, look, asking what happened to the good old days. People don't ask that question from a place of wisdom. I think figuring out how to make the future better seems to be a more worthwhile project for the Christian than looking back at history 40, 50 years ago and say, ah, the good old days. Any general Zers in here? I know there are. Gen Z is just eaten up with a weird form of nostalgia. I don't know if you've witnessed this, but Gen Z is nostalgic for the 80s and 90s, a period of history that they didn't even see the first time. Let me tell you, I was there. It wasn't that great. It was okay. But in Gen Z today, there's something even worse than nostalgia. It's nostalgia for something that they didn't witness in the first place. Maybe some of us are, are like that with the Middle Ages. We, we read about King Charlemagne or King Alfred, these, these Christian kings, these Christian magistrates. We're like, ah, the good old days. You mean the good old days a thousand years before you were born? The good old days where 56-year-old men were marrying 12-year-old girls? There's no running water. There's was horrible incest running amok all over the leadership of Europe. Those, those were the good old days. You see, you see how weird that is when you really start to think about it? Also, in the heart of nostalgia, the sin of discontentment. When you make a field of nostalgia, discontentment grows like wildfire. So pining for the golden old days is not a form of wisdom. It's a form of foolishness, according to the Bible. Now, that's not to say that we can't look at back at things that actually were good and lament at how they were wasted or squandered. But that should motivate us not to this pie-in-the-sky escapism about the past. It should cause us to think, what can we do today for the glory of God that will leave a better tomorrow for our children and grandchildren? Because the, the goal of the Christian should never be to go back. It's always forward. Because this nostalgia, it, it hinders us from remembering what our hope is and where our hope lies. It's not in going back, it's going forward in faith in Jesus Christ. Now here's the third thing that we're taught by Jesus through these passages. Christ teaches us to value sorrow and mourning in verses 2 through 4. You caught that. that was, I'm, I'm not mistaken. Christ teaches us to value sorrow and mourning. He uses house language. Isn't it interesting to hear Solomon say that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting? Isn't that kind of strange? What is he talking about? Why is that the case? Well, we are all going to die one day. And the house of mourning is a better schoolhouse for eternity because we take it to heart, don't we? We take our mortality to heart when we're at a funeral. When we're at a feast, we can get easily distracted from eternity. Think about this. One of those houses causes you to say, I want this to last forever. And the other one causes you to think, you know what? I'm going to die and enter into forever. Let me just, by example... Uh, we feast here at Christ the King Church. If you're visiting with us, please stick around for potluck. Uh, you're going to eat some great food. But how many times, those of you that have been around a long time, you've been sitting there at a potluck here or at a feast that we've had outside of, uh, outside of Sunday mornings, and you're eating some of Aaron Gentry's brisket or whatever other smoked meat he's brought. You're, you're eating his wife's pie that I propagandize you to believe that it's not very good so I can have more of it, right? You're eating, some of you are, are great at making artisanal bread. And so you're eating some of, of the bread that's being provided. You're, you're eating, you know, all these wonderful dishes. How many of you, while you're, you're neck deep in your second helping of that pie, how many of you said, ah, yes, one day I am going to die? never never you've never had that thought as you're feasting what you do is you go man this is so good the fellowship is great this conversation is great i just hope this lord's day lasts forever but i can tell you this about 18 months ago when we buried one of leslie's cousins he was 29 years old when he died never met his full potential right 29 years old never never got no man thinks i'm going to reach my full potential by 29 and then die and that's it that's not what we think And Leslie's family, they actually bury their own dead. Like six shovels, the same six shovels every time get brought out and we scoop dirt and we put it on the casket, right? And let me tell you something, when you hear that North Georgia clay and those rocks bang on top of that casket, you think about eternity. When your fork's hitting the plate and you're going back for thirds of that brisket, you're not thinking I'm gonna die and I need to think about the estate of my soul. But when you put that shovel in the ground and you pour it down on top of a man who's five or six years younger than you, you think about eternity. Do you see why Solomon would say that this house is better than that? He's not saying we should walk around with our, uh, with our heads like this, just, you know, pouting the whole time, thinking about uh, melancholy thoughts. No, he's saying, in light of what the, the whole book is teaching us, to fear God and to keep his commandments, because eventually we're all going to return to our creator, this house is a better teacher than that one. What he's saying here in verse 3 about sadness, and this is, there's a phrase here that's kind of weird. He says, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. That's kind of a strange phrase. That's actually the phrase that Joseph encounters uh, or, the, or that you read about in uh, Joseph's story in Genesis chapter 40, verse 7, as he encounters the, bu- the butler and the baker in prison. They both have this kind of face. right? Here's what Solomon is saying about sadness. Sadness makes our hearts glad because those moments of sadness cause us to do several things. They make us treasure our days, don't they? When you, when you enter into a period of sadness, you encounter sadness, sad things, and you get out of that time of sadness, it makes you thankful for the good days, doesn't it? It helps you enjoy the days that you have. Sadness and seasons of sadness provide an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to comfort us, in a very noticeable way. According to Dr. Benjamin Shaw, and I like this application here, sadness causes serious consideration which produces fruit within us. Again, how often? Maybe you're cleaning the house, or you got the roof off the convertible, and you're driving down the road, and you're jamming out on your way to the beach. Not right now. Don't have the roof down in this weather, please. Uh, At that point, on that kind of drive, on that kind of day, are you are you thinking to yourself? Are, are are you thinking to yourself? Wow, this is a really sanctifying moment. I am thinking about my status as a creature and my creator. Probably not. But it's the moments of sadness that draw us to look to the heavens and go. I need the Holy Spirit to comfort me. Right? You're probably not driving down the beachfront avenue with the top down on the convertible, saying, "Ah, oh, Holy Spirit, I need you to bring comfort my way." Also, sadness sobers us to make us more serious about life, which in the end, we will be glad for it. You think anybody ever has died and said, you know, I really wish, I really wish I had been more flippant about life. I really wish I had gotten lost in more useless frivolity during life. But probably a lot of people have been on their deathbed and looked back and said, you know, I wish I had taken life a little bit more seriously. So that's what sadness does for us. In the end, it makes us glad. Now, the heart is described here in verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth isn't a bad thing. That's not what he's saying here. But remember, the heart is is kind of the central operating element of the inner man. There's cognition, affection, and volition there. It's where we think. The heart is where we have desires, and the the heart is where we make decisions. It's where we make choices. Proverbs 4, verse 23 says, From the heart flows the spring of life. So the, the house of mourning fosters a heart that will want to do more with life. It roots our thoughts, desires, and actions in reality and in light of eternity. The house of mirth doesn't do that. The house of mirth creates in the heart of a fool even more escapism, So to balance this out, let me remind you of the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says that we as Christians, we grieve, we mourn as those with what? With hope. So when we go to the house of mourning, this superior schoolmaster to the house of mirth, we don't mourn and grieve as people without hope. We have hope in Jesus Christ. We know we're we're going to see our dead family members and friends who are in Christ. We're going to see them again. They will be raised with Christ, just as we will be. Here's the fourth thing that Jesus teaches us in this passage. Christ teaches us the gravity of influence and power. This is what's going on in verses 5 through 7. He says in verse 5 that it's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. How in the world can he say that? Isn't a song more fun to listen to than a rebuke? Uh, Yeah. But it's about who's behind the communication if you had a choice, would you rather hear a rebuke from a fool or a song from a wise man? A song from a wise man. Not, not because it's a song, but because the source of that song is a wise man. That's what makes the rebuke more valuable. It's because of who it's coming from. A rebuke from a fool is useless. It's pretty pointless. What these verses are dealing with is influence. Influence. The song of a fool will influence you. It will impact you. The rebuke of a wise man will influence you. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, that bad company corrupts good morals. Wise men want correction, but fools want the song to distract them from recons- reconsidering their ways. The people that you surround yourself with will impact you. You think a fool is ever going to offer a valuable rebuke to course correct your life? No. So if you're a fool or close to being one, surrounding yourself with other fools will lead to your doom. Consider verse six: for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. What's being what's being communicated there? What's being communicated is the company of fools is ultimately useless. It has no real value. Have you ever tried to start a fire? Have you ever tried to cook something in a pot over a fire? Thorns and brambles are pretty useless. They make a whole bunch of noise, they crackle, they make a whole bunch of smoke sometimes, but they don't really give you what you want because they're not slow-burning, steadily burning sources of wood, types of wood, so they're not ultimately going to get the job done. You're going to end up frustrated, and whatever's in the pot's ultimately not going to get cooked. These are not productive relationships, that's what's being said here. Relationships with fools are not productive I can remember about a year year and a half ago, I was in Charlotte for some classes at RTS, and I was standing in line at a grocery store, and it was backed up. It was tons of people in line, only one person on the cash registers, and I started chatting with the guy in in front of me. His name was Jason. And uh, Jason was telling me about his career, and his his career change about a year before. And I said, why would you not just switch companies, but you just completely switch careers? And he says, well, I, I, I had to do something. I was, sur- I was surrounded by not good friends. He, he came to Saving Faith uh, through the preaching of the gospel at his local church. And uh, as he was being discipled, he kind of looked around his workplace, he looked at his boss, and he looked at his coworkers and realized, I've got to get out of here. They're having a huge influence on my life and it's not good. I need better friends. I need a better boss. So he took a job elsewhere for less money at, at the start because he realized that influence is happening, whether he wants it or not, it's always happening. Do, we, do you ever realize that? You are being influenced by the people around you. Sometimes we can think as Christians, well, I'm a really strong Christian. I am impervious to the influence of these other people around me. It's just not the case. It's not just that when we're school children that we're influenced by the people around us, even as adults. And that takes a turn here in verse 7. We see the influence shifting to the civic and political realm. What's being described in verse 7 is someone with power, someone with influence, someone with the ability to impact other people. And their oppression, their tyranny, drives even the wise men mad. Even wise people are not immune to being driven a little crazy by tyrants. That's actually what tyrants want. Tyrants want otherwise reasonable sensible people to kind of go a little crazy because then what does that do for the tyrant? It justifies their tyranny. See, look at how these people respond. But on the other hand, what happens when there's a wise man in a position of power? There's a warning here. A bribe corrupts the heart. Probably a better translation of this word for bribery is extortion. In this case, the wise man is being warned Don't think that you can extort somebody just this one time and keep your heart uncorrupted, keep your heart intact. It's probably not going to become a one-time thing. See, a wise man doesn't toy with sin. And if he does, he won't be wise for long. Because remember, wisdom is not primarily an intellectual category. It's moral. So what's being described here is, hey, you can't do corrupt, sinful things and continue to be a upstanding person you can't separate character from actions and if you go down the this road of actions eventually eventually it's going to affect your character a wise man understands this a wise man understands that although extortion or bribery using that to get the job done this one time although it might be expedient for now it ultimately doesn't help us Here's the fifth thing that Jesus teaches us. He teaches us the nature of anger. It's it's really interesting, the Hebrew phrase here for anger, it's very rigid when you translate it very woodenly in in Hebrew or into English. It says, better is length of spirit than height of spirit. Isn't that interesting? That someone who is patient is is described as length of spirit, and someone who is angry is described as having the height of a spirit. I think that's interesting because how is pride often described, elevating, exalting, putting yourself on high, exalting self. See, there's a connection between pride and anger. There's a connection clearly in this passage between being patient and being proud. It's better to be patient than it is to be proud. Patience is connected in anger in James 4 and in Matthew 5. Being patient and long-suffering is the opposite to being quick to anger. Now, what is anger? Anger is a moral judgment that unrighteousness has occurred. And we're responding to it, right? Whenever we get angry, we're saying, that's not right. You might say, well, I'm, I'm righteously angry, angry, Pastor Nate. I'm not unrighteously angry like all those other people. Well, here's three marks, the three marks of righteous anger. Real sin happened. Someone burning your toast is not sin, right? It's an accident, okay? You're concerned for God's glory and his kingdom, not your own. And then thirdly, you express your anger righteously. How many of you, that's where, that's where you mess up, isn't it? If you, if you happen to make it past the first two, like real sin happened, someone actually sinned against you, and you're really truly concerned only for God's glory and his kingdom and not your pride, not your ego, then it comes to express that anger righteously, and boy, it gets real tricky, doesn't it? So when we often express anger, when you often express anger, is it righteous anger? Probably not. And our anger is rooted in pride. Because when we're, we're prideful, we're, we're saying, I have the right to make a moral judgment or valuation upon this person. We are elevating ourselves above them in our unrighteous anger, and we are looking down upon them as if we're not equals, as if we're not fellow creatures in need of God's grace. And the thing about anger, according to verse 9, is that anger lingers. It sets up shop in the hearts of fools. See, a wise man will not harbor or hold on to or foster anger, but the fool gives anger the keypad code for a stay, and begins to coddle up next to it, holds anger close. But the wise man evicts anger quickly when it shows up. The wise man knows that anger is not good or profitable, but the fool is easily vexed. The wise man is slow to anger, but the fool is arrogant, while the wise man humbles himself before God. You see, a patient man, a humble man, is not quick to anger. A wise man knows to pursue patience and humility, to flee from anger. Now here's the sixth thing that Jesus teaches us about, and that's how to view wisdom and money, verses 11 through 12. Verse 11 is describing financial inheritance, which in in this context, would be land or property. Land and property was so valuable to them as a culture, God actually forbid them from selling off their inheritance, from selling their property. If they got into a financial jam and they owned a bunch of property, they could sell the products of that field for a certain length of time, but they couldn't ultimately sell off their birthright. And what's being said here is simply this. I'll make it as, as easy as I can. Wealth is good, and wisdom is good, Wisdom is better, but it's best if you have both. There's nothing wrong with having wealth. Proverbs 30 verse 8 says that poverty isn't inherently virtuous. And you know what? We shouldn't think that wealth without wisdom is inherently virtuous either. What have I said before about wealth? If you're wealthy but you're not wise, you have a whole lot of means to destroy yourself like a fool very quickly. I think it'd actually be better to be a fool who is poor than a fool who is incredibly wealthy. Because you have less means to do damage to yourself and to others. But being wise and being wealthy are both an advantage to you. They're both a source of protection. Think about it. How many times have you been in a, in a jam in life and money got you out of that jam? Right? Unexpected thing happened, seems like a disaster, and you had the money to just throw the money at the problem, and the problem went away. It happens. How many times have you been in trouble, and all you had was your wits and your wisdom about you? And you were able to get out of that sticky situation, whatever it was, because of your wisdom. Right? See, the poor man and the fool, they don't have those advantages. They don't have those means to be able to employ this protection to solve the problem. So, they both serve to protect us, but what happens when we have both? We have a double layer of protection. Now, he describes one more advantage beyond wealth and beyond wisdom it's the advantage of knowledge, the advantage of knowing that wisdom can preserve your life. Finally, Solomon tells us what he thinks about wisdom and life and death. Because just last week, as he's satirizing another worldview, he's talking about the fact that both the poor man And the wealthy man, the wise man and the fool, they both, they all end up in the grave. So what's the point? Well, here's the point. The wise man is likely to outlive the fool, right? Famous last words, right? Hold my beer, right? Famous last words. I bet I can, right? Those are the words of fools, you leave a large enough group of men out in the middle of a field long enough, and eventually someone's going to come up with a bad idea. And you need a wise brother there to say, hey, guys, we got wives and family, we got children to give back to. Like, this is a terrible idea. We're not young men anymore, right? That happens too, doesn't it? We get to a certain age, and we're like, I'm going to go make that jump. You can't do that anymore. You're not 20, right? So if you're wise, you're probably going to avoid physical disaster and even death compared to the fools around you. So there's a value in wisdom. It can prolong your life. Wisdom is life-giving. Wisdom is worth pursuing. Money's good, but wisdom's better. And it's really great if you have both. Now, there are different ways that we can phrase the applications of these verses. You might think to yourself, look, I must. You've heard me say that before. And that's, a, that's a perfectly fine way to, uh, uh, to speak about the commands and imperatives of Scripture. When God gives us an imperative, when He says, you shall do this or you must do this, we must do it. So you might be tempted to say, I must. Be wise. I must pursue wisdom. Because the Lord is the creator, because He's the king, He's given us the standard of how to wisely live, I must pursue wisdom. I must do wise things. I must think wise thoughts. Yes, that's all true. And there's another way that you might think about applying these principles I should. You might think, well, look, Jesus is my redeemer and an obedient response, a reasonable response to His grace is that I would do these things. I should do these things because of all that Jesus has done for me. Perfectly fine way to apply these principles. I should. You should. I should pursue wisdom. Right? I should reorient my thinking about all of these things based on the wisdom that Solomon has just given to me. Absolutely. But here's one that's often left out. I can. I can do these things because the Son ascended to the Father and they poured out the Spirit upon his church. You ever thought about that? As you come to the Bible and there's difficult teachings or there's, there's application that needs to be made, and you're like, I know I should do that. I know I must do that. But how in the world am I going to make it happen? How in the world is it going to take place in my life? Holy Spirit. Christ said in the Gospel of John, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending a helper. I'm sending a comforter. And the same Holy Spirit that he poured out upon his church as recorded in the book of Acts, that Holy Spirit dwells and abides in you as individuals and as families and us as a church. Because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished, and because the Holy Spirit of God is with us, we can. We can grow in wisdom and live in wisdom because the Spirit has given us a new heart. And because we don't, as Paul says in Romans 8, we don't have to walk by the flesh anymore. Has that ever dawned upon you? Ever been reading Romans 8 and you're like, oh, I don't have to do this? I'm not a slave to sin anymore. I serve a master in Christ. You don't have to pursue folly anymore. You can have this worldview, a view of these various things that is being taught, by, uh, taught to us by Christ through Solomon. You can pursue godly wisdom because of what Jesus has accomplished in you and for you. Because his spirit dwells within you to help you, you can follow Christ into the wisdom that is better than folly. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray.